Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. We're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family. We consider the research, talk to experts, and share our takes on what we're all learning about breadwinning. I'm Jennifer Owens. I write about working, wellness, and women, and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And on most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Raquel Ellison. On this episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Serrett of Emory University's Center for the Study of Human Health. Her research and teaching on intellectual and developmental disabilities considers questions of ethics, justice, stigma, and health. A non-disabled ally, Jennifer also leads Disruptive Inclusion, which works with companies to consider disability and ableism as part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion equation. All of which is to say, welcome, fellow Jennifer. Thank you so much, fellow Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here. Appreciate you having me. You know, we, it is I and you and all the Jennifers that rule the world, truly. <laughs> I definitely agree with that statement. Yeah. <laughs> and they should. I mean, come on. You know, we are, we are at the top of the pile. Yeah. <laughs> well, so at the breadwinners, you know, we, t- we, Typically start with a stat, you know, and it's kind of gives some sort of framework to what we're discussing. But I find that like the intersection of disability uh, and breadwinning a little hard to pin down because the definitions of disability can vary as someone who's done surveys around it where, you know, like I don't anyways, my whole point is like, anything can be considered disability. It's like, you know it in your heart, but then when you start to define it, and so I thought I'd give you the hard task of kind of defining the population we're talking about with visible and non-visible disability. Okay. Well, yes, that is a very um, difficult question. You're right. It's like I tell my students with most questions, it depends. Right. Um, <laughs> the definition of disability is, you're right, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of nebulous. It has fuzzy boundaries. And, um, you know, there are some disabilities that you're like, yes, definitely this belongs in the category of disability. People who use right. chairs, sensory-based disabilities like blindness, deafness, things like that. And those are, you know, quote-unquote visible disabilities. You can kind of see them on the body um, and they're immediately apparent. And then there's a whole category of quote-unquote invisible disabilities or hidden disabilities, things that you can't really tell just by looking at somebody's body. Um, these can be intellectual and developmental disabilities. They can be psychiatric dis- disabilities. And beyond that, it kind of even gets a little bit fuzzier. There's a a conversation in the disability world about um, who do we include under this umbrella of people with disabilities, like cancer survivors or people living with HIV AIDS, um, things like that. And it really depends on uh, your approach, what you're trying to do. Um, So if you're trying to if, if, if you're putting out an assertion of, look, people with disabilities are the largest minority group in the United States, which they are at 20% of the population, then you're going to kind of want to say, look, we include a, a whole bunch of people. But when you're right. thinking of particular accommodations or rights, rights-based movements, you're going to kind of narrow it down a little bit more. And then, of course, there's medical definitions, there's legal definitions, you know, the Americans with yeah. Disabilities Act has... Um, a very specific definition that it even includes uh, women who are pregnant. It varies. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's, that's my, it, it, it there. Hey, well, cause when I did a survey at a working mother where uh, we were looking at disabilities in the workplace and, you know, I got schooled on that there were visible, non-visible and, and, you know, like I was coming in mm-hmm. it a little cold on it, 
But when we would talk to to defining what we were trying to get at. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where like, I know it when I see it kind of Mm -hmm. thing. They would say, well, you could call it, you know, vision, you know, you wear glasses. That's just, and like, come on. No, no. What we're talking about is I need an accommodation. That was what we were trying to get at the, like how comfortable do people have in being open Mm -hmm. about whatever they need and about asking for whatever they need. And the upshot was, was super stressful to have a non-visible one that there was a lot of like, I don't want you to know about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to ask mm-hmm. about it. And which just, it breaks your heart, yeah. you know, like it, that it shouldn't be that stressful to be your true self at work, but I totally get it. And that's really important when you don't have a, a visible disability, then you have the right to yep. disclose when you feel comfortable doing so. But if you're not comfortable disclosing at work, yet you need accommodations, that puts you in a a bit of a sticky situation. And I also want to note that you can want or need an accommodation and not have a disability or not um, have a diagnosed disability, right? And so I think this is why I think accommodations should be available to anybody, regardless of the presence um, of a disability. But, you know, I've done some research with autistic adults, and I want to have a note on language here. There is two different ways of talking about disability. There's identity first language and person first language. I think Mm -hmm. people by now are familiar with person first language. That's when you say things like person who uses a wheelchair or, you know, person with a vision impairment, things like that. Right. I say autistic person because the autistic self-advocates that I know in my life and the scholars that I read Note that autism is really important to their identity formation, that they, 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 they value their autism and so really prefer identity first. So I'm going to use autistic individual. Yeah. But I did some research with autistic adults on um, employment and higher education. And um, what I found was that a lot of them are very hesitant to disclose their autism at work for a variety of reasons. One being that once you do that, then everything you do gets attributed to your autism. So it's, well, you did really good on this task. It's probably because he's autistic (laughs) or really messed this up. It's probably because of the autism, you know? And so, and then they also encountered a lot of um, when they disclosed their autism to coworkers or bosses responses like, really? Are you sure? You just don't seem like it. My cousin's autistic and he's nothing like you, or you don't seem anything like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. Right. Sheldon, (laughs) only Sheldon. Yeah. So, you know, and those are just inappropriate. Right. Well, yeah. Well, so where is the equation right now? Like, so in the world uh, that I talk to a lot of the folks that are working in the diversity diversity, equity, and inclusion mm-hmm. space, it's a lot about gender mm-hmm. and race, mm-hmm. ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And between us and anyone listening, <laughs> but disability is always included, but I, it's yeah. like, it's, I don't know, it just feels often like a check the box. It thing. really does. And I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, we do with disruptive inclusion, we do all that other stuff as well. But like I say, we bring a specialty to disability. And one of the reasons is because it seems to be often sort of the tag on at the end. Yeah. And and it's and it's really focused on the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And you can really go much beyond the ADA and accommodations. I think that the reason for this sort of forgottenness is that because disability is associated with our bodies and our minds and our biology it seems sort of like a natural type of hierarchy that 
oh, we can point Mm. to a particular thing that makes somebody's skills or abilities different than people that we are typically encountering in the workspace. And because we are so focused on productivity and so focused on, you know, normalcy, then it seems just natural that we would have certain people who have differences in those areas be left out. Like that seems like a, a, a reasonable reason not to hire somebody or not to give somebody a tender. Mm, yeah. And, and what's interesting about that is that all of our definitions of what is normal or typical is culturally situated within history, within, like I said, our culture. And so all of our definitions of disability and what doesn't quote unquote count as normal or as pathologized is also deeply cultural and changes over time, changes over place. I mean, we didn't have the word autism until the 1940s, right? So did it, not even know that. I yeah, I thought it was a more recent term. There you go. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, and so I think that's the reasons why I think it's kind of like tagged on to the end. The other thing I think is that our culture has used disability labels, particularly disability labels that are associated with the mind to denigrate other groups. So women couldn't vote for a long time because we were too feeble-minded to understand the complexities of politics. Sure. Native American populations were thought too incompetent to own land or even manage their own money. And of course, we know that people who were enslaved were deemed also too incompetent to, to even care for their own lives and have this paternalistic perspective. All of that is the employment of disability to break down other groups. And so while we, what, when we try to remove the stigma from those other groups, part of that is saying, well, they're not disabled in this way, right? But that still yeah. suggests disability is a bad thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I'm thinking of as, as a child of a certain age, a Jennifer mm-hmm. born in the 60s, <laughs> to watch the use of language mm-hmm. around the LGBTQ mm-hmm community you know like that was a way you denigrated people when you were right. a kid and 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 so because somehow it meant that you were weak mm-hmm. you know especially amongst the boys somehow right. and and i and it, it you're making me think of that kind of like wait why does that say weak why yeah. what does what are you talking about and the same thing of you're crazy mm-hmm. you're unstable you're whatever as a way to uh Yeah, that's um, such a good point. And, you know, we have a campaign that's been going on for a few years called in the R word, which is mm -hmm. um, to stop using the R word as a as an insult. Now people use intellectual disability as the scientific classification. But before the R word, there was moron, imbecile and idiot, which were scientific classifications. So there's this cycle of taking these scientific classifications, they use them as insults and then having to come up with a, a new word. So, so the, uh, you're telling me that the kids of my elementary school, and probably myself included, I, I will not exclude myself from these. We were actually being scientists? Great. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but, I, but I'm also really glad that you brought up the word crazy because we use that word all the time colloquially. And yeah. it's a really hard one for people to remove from the vocabulary because at first blush, it seems kind of like, and not a bad word, you know, like if somebody tells you, oh my God, I went to this party last weekend and it was so crazy. You're like, oh, that sounds like a party I maybe wanted to be. You know, it sounds kind of great. But when you think about it, what what is that word crazy standing in for? It's standing in for wild, unpredictable, you know, kind of, you know, those kinds of words. Those aren't really words you want to apply to a person. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And yet we do. Yeah, exactly. So, well, 
how about that? Like one of the things I remember from doing our uh, study, our very small, mm -hmm. dipping our toe into this whole topic was the unemployment rate among, mm -hmm. especially uh, folks with visible disability mm -hmm. is super high, mm -hmm. like, like unconscionably high, which it just, when you're thinking really, so if someone's uh, needs a cane or is in a wheelchair, mm -hmm. they somehow you're not going to, I just, it's, I, it, what's happening with employment? It's so bad. It's so bad. And people who have these sort of visible disabilities, you know, it, part of it is um, companies get afraid that they're going to have to spend all kinds of money. Yeah. Accommodations, which it's accommodations are not the average about $500. Yeah. Then, you know, so it's not, it's not that much. It's like a desk, you know, like, yeah, yeah I just need a desk that I can, I can go up or higher or lower exactly. with. It maybe exactly. it's a keyboard I need. I mean, it's really yes, yeah. and I, that fear is palpable. That yeah. oh my god, that's going to cost me like ten thousand bucks to get that person yeah. all set in, and so just not true. yeah, yeah. And then I think also, I mean, unfortunately, the, the people I know who who have visible disabilities continue to report that often it's assumed that their skills and abilities and intellect are also <laughs> disabled, and so there's yeah somehow lesser than disability. yeah. But even beyond that. People with disabilities of the mind are the most unemployed. And there's been some really interesting economic studies coming out saying that instead of having people with disabilities in what are called sheltered workshops, which are just basically like adult daycare, as you maybe give people a task and pay them mm -hmm. a dollar, that is not for a community as economically profitable than the alternative, which is to have something called a job coach, which is where somebody goes into a job with a person who is disabled and helps them to whatever extent they need. And that might be the job coach is there every single day with that person, but it also might be that that person helps them get started, learn the job, and then just checks in every once in a while. And it's shown that that model is, is better um, economically and obviously much better for people with disabilities because they're out in the community. They're actually, you know, participating in our community and they're not hidden away in the way that they are in sheltered workshops. You know, and then, you know, how many people are using uh, executive coaches, mm -hmm. career coaches, yeah. uh, media trainers. You think of all the, right. the, there's a whole universe of great smart people that help mm -hmm. the executive, the top mm -hmm. achieve even more. And like, it's I just basically an executive coach for someone who just needs it in a certain – it's all skill help. You're right. I love that analogy. I had not thought about that. Do you mind if I steal yeah, that? And you that completely do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I am here for it. So, yes, this is just the executive coach for yet another person on your team. So it's just a different way. It's executive function. There you go. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, tell me, so the word I had mentioned in, in talking about you mm -hmm. is, is ableism, mm -hmm. which is a word, you know, those of us who are in the world mm -hmm. have heard it, but I'm not quite sure, like, what is it and how can we be anti-ableist? Good question. So ableism is sort of the counterpart of racism, sexism, heterosexism, things like that. It's basically um, a word of discrimination against people because of their disability, more technically, it's a preference for people who aren't disabled. Mm. And this shows up all over in our world. Um, once you start looking for ableism, you'll never be able to stop. <laughs> oh, no. Like, much like sexism and racism. Exactly, Got it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's instituted in our policies. For example, again, when we come to employment, we still have 
Section 14C of the Fair Labor Standard Act, which allows companies to apply to pay their disabled workers below minimum wage. Really? Yeah. Under this notion that they're not going to be as productive as their other employees. So that is a very clear example of ableism. Um, But then there's also, you know, language that we've already talked about is kind of some more implicit ableism, Um, you know, talking to people with disabilities in a different tone of voice is ableism. It's just kind of everywhere. Using um, non-disabled actors and actresses to play disabled characters in the media Mm -hmm. is, you know, things like that. And so, you know, just like racism and sexism, we're all enculturated to be ableist, right? Yeah. Um, There's this amazing Black philosopher at Emory named George Yancey, and he talks about how as a white person, which he is not, obviously, then you are racist. And the best you can be is an anti-racist racist. And he says, just like as a man, he is sexist, and the best he can be is an anti-sexist sexist. And so I think that that really makes a lot of sense. It tells us that Nobody escapes the incorporation of uh, discrimination. And so I think the best we can be is an anti-ableist ableist. And just, you know, similar to being an ally with other communities, it starts with informing yourself, right? This does not mean go find your disabled friend or coworker (laughs) and do an interview. This means go to the internet, which has a wealth of resources. I actually have on my website, disruptiveinclusion.com, a a resources tab that has a whole bunch of um, resources created by people with disabilities. So it's a good start. So I think, again, starting out by just informing yourself to be be an ally. Um, And the next thing is um, you can, even though if you do not identify as disabled, you can still keep an eye out for access barriers in your company and in your life. So noting if For example, there are stairs to a building and there's no ramp or the ramp is around the back of the building rather than sort of integrated into the front of the building. You know, that's something that even if you do not use a wheelchair, you can make noise about. I think that being open about leaders in particular, I think one of my top suggestions for leaders to get started to be anti-ableist is at the beginning of meetings or get togethers or anything like that to note the the access features and the limitations of those features. So for example, if we ever go back to a place when we have in-person meetings, <laughs> you know, leaders, leaders will be like, okay, welcome to our meeting. Um, you know, we have microphones because it amplifies voices for people with hearing impairments. So I hope that everybody will use a microphone, even though this is a kind of a smallish space. Unfortunately, we do not have live captioning, just noting those kinds of features is a really good way to be an ally. Yeah. I always love um, the idea that you have to be ever vigilant. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. A friend a friend of our podcast, uh, uh, Christina Blacken says, just because you're, you know, a good person, you don't get a pass. Right. <laughs> she, right. It's like, you know, this isn't a theme park and you're not on, you don't get a pass when it comes to uh, institutional racism Absolutely. and you know institutional ableism and Absolutely. it's just because you know we're we're blessed by the things we don't even think about mm-hmm. that go our way because we don't need the microphone or to amplify we don't need you know the ramp to go up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that my kid is probably running up and down that ramp yeah, exactly. <laughs> well and the thing is is things like 
a lot of these accommodations, like like ramps or microphones or whatever the case may be, are useful for people without disabilities too. And that's what's called yes. universal design. So if you don't know about universal design, I highly recommend that all the listeners go and check out universal design. It's a way to think about developing and creating spaces that are as accessible to as many people as possible, um, which then reduces the likelihood that somebody is going to need to out themselves and ask for an accommodation. But like ramps and curb cuts, great for people with strollers. I love them. (laughs) (laughs) Great for people whose knees are aching a bit, you know? Yes. Exactly. It's so true. It is very true that in the working mother world, uh, we always would say we were at the vanguard because all the things that we wanted, like paid sick time, yep. flexible work, these things everyone in the workforce wanted. It's just we always desperately needed them the minute we have a kid. And we're like, oh, my God, <laughs> I need yeah. some paid time. And it's the same way with, like with universal design. Mm-hmm. These are things we all want. It's just the person desperately needs it is up front, you know, saying, mm-hmm. no, no, I need this right now. Yeah. So, so please. True. And I love captioning. I mean, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yeah. If you're watching The Crown, I can't understand right? anything Prince Philip says. He doesn't move his lips. <laughs> and I'm sure that's how the real guy does it. But I, you know, can caption. Thank you. Right. So thank you for universal design of closed captioning. I appreciate it. Well, and I'll put a plug in here for clear masks. Since we're all wearing masks these days, it means that Ooh. people who have hearing impairments can't read lips as easily which isn't the best solution, right? The best solution, obviously, is more people to learn American Sign Language. But mm. but, but even with American Sign Language, you, facial expressions are really important a part of yeah. communicating. So um, so we have some clear masks here in this household, and I, you know, I recommend people check them out. Wow. I've seen some. And um, it's funny how you see things, too, that you don't realize, like, the – what. It, what their original it's like mm-hmm. you see it and you think oh that's kind of cool that's really great and right. not thinking well there's a reason right. that they started and mm-hmm. then we all benefit <laughs> exactly that's exactly right absolutely. absolutely well can can we spend a little time on so you're a non-disabled a- mm-hmm. ally mm-hmm. so what brought you to this field yeah um so i i first got interested in autism i'm gonna go way back i first got interested in autism in high school in my high school ap psych class and and kind of decided that i really wanted to learn more and and started doing my own study on it and in college i studied psychology and i became the head teacher for a young woman um, who was autistic in her home and then i went on and got a special education degree master's degree at vanderbilt and was doing some special education work and never you know it was it was fine, but there were some there was something about it that didn't quite mesh well with me. So I decided I did some traveling and decided um, I really just wanted to travel the world and hang out with autistic people. And so um, I ended up going to Emory and getting my PhD where I studied culture and autism. And it was at Emory that I encountered the field of disability studies, which is kind of like women's studies or African-American studies. It's the study of disability culture and history and rights and advocacy. Mm. And that's when I kind of realized, oh, this is why I was uncomfortable with special education because it was normalizing disability. It was trying to make people with disabilities act non-disabled in a way that made oh. me uncomfortable my core. And so that's what opened up this world of ableism, of disability culture and history and um, disability rights and advocacy. And so I started to really um, shift all of my work into that direction. Along the way, I started learning about 
ethics and bioethics and human rights. And all of that is integrated into my approach as well. And I teach all of this stuff in my classes. And then I kept thinking, God, I just really want to be out there in the community doing more impactful on the ground work, which brought me to diversity, equity, and inclusion type of work. So that's where I am at now. And I just, I love it. I, I get really worked up and passionate. I think my most common feedback on trainings, workshops, and classes is Dr. Surrett really is very passionate. (laughs) 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 So my enthusiasm is um, uh, sometimes I think a little bit on the higher end. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I I can get that way too. So I always have to say I'm now stepping down from my soapbox. I'm out. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. Well, and so what are the companies saying? What are the types of things you're doing in the company? You know, and, you know, wrap up your entire business in a minute. There you go. Sorry. um, (laughs) You know, in terms of um, disability and stuff like that, it's really, you you start at where people are. You know, I Mm -hmm. think that people think about doing disability DE&I and think, oh God, one more thing. How how am I going to write this up? And so, you know, we can start where people are at with what are your accommodation needs, how to put them most appropriately, things like that, all the way up to how to really incorporate anti-ableism, allyship, um, and work throughout the organization. I, we mm-hmm. also, though, focus on teaching and training the foundations of diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging, like intersectionality, microaggressions, othering, which is important not only to disability, but to all other right. disenfranchised identity groups. My, the idea is that, you know, if we can teach leaders and teams the why of DE&I, then they can go on to do the how in ways that are sustainable, dynamic, um, and, and more um, appropriate for their teams without right. necessarily the need for constant consultation, right? Right. Yeah, I could see that because sometimes I'm, you may be coming to a company that this whole consideration of DEI is brand new. Others where they have a history of doing it, they just kind of have never really watered the garden that had the disability, you know, equation as part of it. Exactly. And we really do a custom built approach. I have a background in anthropology. And so, you know, I love doing anthropological qualitative research. So I do that to specify specific needs. And then I have a team of subject area experts I can pull on for, you know, if you don't want the ally perspective, but I think that the disability perspective um, is most appropriate, then I can, you know, reach out to one of my disability self-advocates or mm-hmm. people who are experts and from the field of, of race or gender or sexuality to sort of lead actual trainings and workshops or strategy or whatever. Right. Oh, well, thank yeah. you. Well, thank you for uh, joining us on The Breadwinners thank today. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Um, our guest today was Dr. Jennifer Surrett. You'll find links to what diversity conversation, the topics that we're talking about, about her group in the episode description. Email us anytime at thebreadwinnerspod at gmail.com or visit us at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. It really helps us grow. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.